Luke 5.16. Last time we saw the call of four fishermen to become fishers of men. James and John were brothers in the fishing industry, and so was Peter and Andrew. And they were partners, the Bible tells us. These men ultimately became disciples of Jesus. We also saw a detailed healing of a leper. Today we're going to see the healing of a paralytic, the call of Matthew, and Jesus' call to grave sinners of society, all with the underlying theme of reaching out and showing grace to the forgotten ones. So let's jump in, verse 16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. First we have to start off by understanding who the characters are here. The Pharisees possibly comes from the Hebrew word farats, which means to separate or divide. These were a group of religious leaders that separated themselves from the general population. They focused on the letter of the law, the Jewish law. They elevated tradition over scripture, which is not what God wanted. They were legalists. They didn't show grace. And they made a show of religion in their manner of apparel, what they wore. They felt that the fancier their, their robes and, and what they wore were made them more look spiritual. And also their words, their actions. When they prayed, they made a show of it that everybody could see. When they fasted, they made sure everybody knew that they were fasting by their faces. And Jesus corrected them. These men were also part of the ruling body called the Council or the Sanhedrin. We also had the teachers of the law, the lawyers, the scribes. These were legal specialists. They memorized the law. They knew the law. They taught the details of the law. They also handled legal contracts. Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the lawyers, respectively, in Matthew 23 and Luke 11, which we'll get to. The lawyers also manipulated the law. I see nothing's really changed in society. I'm just kidding. I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. But as religious leaders, it was their job to claim, or to test the claims of the Messiah, rather. Uh, you can see Deuteronomy 13 in the Old Testament and Deuteronomy 18. Specifically, you would test the prophet. It was sort of a litmus test to see that this prophet who claimed to be from God was truly a prophet of God. And in verse 17, at the end, actually an alternate uh, translation helps to clear this up. It says, and the power of the Lord was, um, excuse me, the power of the Lord was present with him, meaning Jesus, to heal. Kind of makes it, makes more sense there. Verse 18. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him in and lay him before him. We get the words in our English, palsy, paralysis, from the Greek word paralutikos, which basically is an affliction that disables the voluntary muscle control, usually as a result of a disease or damage to the nervous system. This guy can't initiate motility on his own. He needs his friends to help him get around. Actually, says a lot about his friends, as we'll see. In verse 19, it says, And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. It wasn't like a bed like they were carrying around a king-sized bed with a box spring. It was more like a, a mat, you know, more of a mat or a thick uh, cloth that they could get him around with. But the crowd consisted of 
we'll see often these crowds that come to follow Jesus. And there's, you can actually differentiate the people in the crowd. You have the genuine, like the paralytic and his friends. These people were genuine. They would do anything they could to hear Jesus, to be part of his life, to have him touch them in, in a great way. You also have the spectators. If you read John chapter 6, it speaks more about who the spectators were. The Bible tells us clearly that people came pretty much just to use Jesus. They got a free meal. You know, he'd break the loaves and the fish. They hungry, hang out with Jesus. Hey, Fred, you know, my arthritis is really acting up. Hey, let's go see Jesus. Maybe he'll take, that, take care of it for you. And then you had your criticizers. Here it was the religious leaders. They didn't want to see the truth. They had an agenda. You know what? Even in the church you see things like this. You see people who come and go, who like the activities, the food, the word tickles their ears for a time, but they can spend some time in the church and they, there's real no commitment. But these people can be won over. A lot of people who are coming to the church as spectators become won over by the word of God and of Christ and they become the genuine. And then you have the genuine. The genuine are a blessing to any pastor. They really want a relationship with God and they really want to see how the word of God can be applicable in their life. I was supposed to be studying last night and... Uh, a young gentleman, a new Christian, had come in and he wanted to talk to me about some things. But this young guy, he's so concerned about how he can please God. He brings his Bible. You know, he, it's just amazing. It's just great to see people who have that thirst. They're hungry for the Word of God. And then you have those with the agendas. These people are only here to further their agenda. A pastor friend of mine called them emissaries of Satan. And this is how you can recognize them. They come into the church purposely to cause division. They start little fires around the church, endlessly tying up church leadership and uh, resources and time. But these people have no fruit in their life and they never grow. Now, these people are different from the spectators because they actually come in with an agenda. They're not looking for anything to reach their heart, but they can still be won over by the word. And I just want to do an illustration I actually heard about this illustration. I don't know who it was, but somebody had told me about an illustration that somebody did with confetti. And for the purpose of the audio, I'm going to explain what I'm doing here. This is packing material. Everybody has seen this before. You know if you order something like a flashlight or a jewelry box from mail order, and it comes in, it's a little thing that you're getting, but it comes in another big box, and all this stuff is surrounded by it. And, you know, it's annoying because as you're going through looking for your product, you charge up these little foam things and they stick to your clothing and you can't get them off. But this is a picture of if I'm somebody who's sowing discord or sowing division, okay? And each one of these little green things, there's about a hundred of, of them, represent little pieces of gossip, little pieces of character assassination, a little bit of slander, a little bit of, um, you know, trying to take you away what the, the word is trying to be. How long does it take me to do this and dump it all over the place? Now, you probably think I'm out of my mind, but that's what I have elders for. <laughs> now, I'll clean it up at the end. They're giving me dirty looks in the back. <laughs> but it only took, what, a second to dump that bag onto the floor? Now, if I was to get down on my hands and knees and pick up each one, church leadership, gossip, I've got to write that wrong, slander, I've got to write that wrong, so, talking bad about the, the church leadership. I've got to write that wrong. This could take me hours. You see the difference? So it actually can be very dangerous. It doesn't take many people 
to cause a lot of problems and division in the church. But you know what? God still loves those people. And Jesus loved those people. In this instance, it was the religious leaders. And as a matter of fact, if you look further in the early history of the church, even after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Acts 6-7 tells us that some of these priests and some of these religious leaders actually turned to the faith. They were won over by the Lord. But the truth is, we try to win them over. We try to love them. We try to show them grace. We try to show them Jesus. But if they still have an agenda, then we have to show them the door. It's that simple. Now, this man was lowered through a roof. Now, we think of that and say, that's ridiculous. How could that happen? Well, you have to understand the homes back then. The homes would have walls built, and then there would be cross beams across the walls, spread out pretty good. And then that they would have um, flat stones or uh, baked clay tiles sitting on top of that. And then they would thatch the top with a mortar mixture of straw and mud and let it dry. And then on the side of the house would be a ladder or a stairwell, depending on how elaborate the home was, and it would lead to the roof. The roof would double as a patio to hang out and, and socialize. It would also double as a place to carry or to catch rainwater for washing and cooking. So you have to picture the scene because, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and we just kind of just read it and we just memorize it, but we don't really visualize it. Because you imagine, it must have been a pretty good-sized home. Jesus is teaching. And there's probably some noise on the roof, and people started looking up, and some pieces of dirt might have fallen on Jesus' head. And then all of a sudden, you see daylight. The, the, the roof opens up, and they start lowering this man right in front of Jesus because they couldn't get to him through the normal means. And they lay this man right in front of Jesus. But you know what's interesting? The faith of this man's friends. We're going to read verse 20. It says, So when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven. It's, it's focusing on the faith of the friend. And the funny thing is, when we think we have a formula to get God to do something for us, we're going to look at the Bible. People try to come up with these formulas. Well, if I say this certain prayer in this certain way and say, and Jesus' name at the end, he's going to do it. He's obligated. When, when we say any type of prayer, it could be a self-centered prayer and say, in Jesus' name. That's like the postage stamp that gets it to the Lord, right? But the Bible shows us that there is no formula. Because in this particular instance, it's really the faith of the friends who brought this man that Jesus marveled over. And he ends up healing the guy. But a few things here to look at. Number one, only God can forgive sins. It's important to understand. If you're taking notes, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Psalm 103.3, Isaiah 43.25, and Daniel 9.9. Only God can forgive sins. Because sin, the Greek word hamartia, means to miss the mark. We fall short of God's glory and perfection. That's what sin is. We miss the boat, right? And even if you sin against another human being, it's still an offense against God. So Jesus is claiming to be God. That's, you can't look at this any other way. If you look at John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, uh, you can see the examples of that also. Jesus is claiming to be God. This is where false teaching goes wrong. They try, they try to strip Jesus of his deity. They try to bring him down to be on our level. Well, that, there's a problem with that. And the second thing is that this man gets more than he bargained for. It's more important for this man's sins to be forgiven than for his body to be healed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, 
It's better pretty much to get into heaven lame, missing body parts, than to be whole and enter hell. And of course, Jesus made uh, explain that more in detail, but it's better if something causes you to sin to, to get rid of it, to pluck out your eye, to cut off your hand. It's better to get into heaven missing body parts than to get into hell whole. What is that going to do for you? And we see also that sin is an original precursor to disease. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 6.3, God tells us that he shortened mankind's lifespan because of continual sin, continual evil, and the continual thoughts of evil. So he actually shortened our lifespan to 120 years max. Um, And actually, if it wasn't for sin, none of us would get sick or die. There's more formulas out there. If you do this and you do that and you say this, God is obligated to make you well. That's not necessarily the case, because we do get sick and we do die. If you look at people who die, it's usually a failure of the heart. It's it's usually a failure of the brain to the um, autonomous nervous system with the heart rate and and the, um, the lungs and all that, or an infection that causes somebody to die. There's usually a failure somewhere in the body that causes death. So, so sickness leads to death, and it all comes from sin. When sin entered the world, death entered the world. You know, people, I mean, even look about uh, Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, Lazarus was resurrected, right? After a few days, his body started to decompose into the tomb, and they said there's a terrible smell. You know, the, the bacteria were doing their job. But Jesus called him out, and he resurrected Lazarus. How many people have been to the Middle East? Israel? Few people. Okay, while you were, were over there, who's, who's seen Lazarus here? Anybody? Anybody see Lazarus? Anybody read one of his books? See a picture of him? On the news, maybe? You know why? Because he's dead. Jesus resurrected him. He did a miracle, but Lazarus died again because he's under the same curse that we're under, of original sin. In verse 21, it says this, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Leviticus 24.16 in the Old Testament spoke about blasphemy. It was punishable by death. In this instance, they erroneously believed that Jesus was falsely claiming to be God. He truly was God, but if he was falsely claiming to be God, the, the, the punishment is death. Of course, a careful search of the scripture, as we went a few Sundays back, shows the deity of Christ. The Bible tells us in detail about how Jesus is God, how his examples of him being God, and his claims of being God. The deity of Christ, um, to take away that deity, is a recycled heresy from the 4th century. You can look it up, it's called Arianism. It comes from a man named Arius. He started the heresy that Jesus wasn't God. And actually that was recycled in 1870 by the Jehovah Witnesses, then called the Millennial Dawnists, before they had changed their name. But if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you have to agree with the Pharisees, that he's, he's blaspheming and, he's, and he deserves death. See, what you think about the Lord Jesus determines your eternal security. It's very important to understand what you believe about him. And you can't sit on the fence. Jesus doesn't leave that option open to us. You either have to believe he is who he said he is, that he is God, or that you have to reject him as a deceiver and say, people say, oh, he's just a good man, he's a good teacher. No. If he really wasn't, you have to reject him. If any of you here started claiming to be God, I would probably send you for an evaluation. Right? So, 
A few things to note here. We spoke before about leprosy analogous to the infiltration of sin. Now, again, if somebody has a disease or a sickness, it doesn't mean that they sin so bad and that's what happened to them. It's just part of the curse. However, if leprosy was analogous to the infiltration of sin, then this, this paralysis, the paralysis that he had or this disease that this man had here was a complete paralyzing, neutralizing, and making him completely effective, ineffective for the kingdom. Verse 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. So Jesus, number one, reads their minds. And some of the other Gospels make it more clear that they were thinking things in their mind, these religious leaders, and Jesus read their thoughts. Well, that's very interesting because that's another one of God's attributes. When we cover spiritual warfare, we'll talk about the demonic realm and the spiritual realm, good and bad. And we'll see that the, the demonic realm can know things about us. They can follow things about us. They can hear things. They can see things. They can mess with us, right? But they can't read our minds. The Bible doesn't say that they can read our minds. Only God can read our minds and our thoughts. And the two, he says, which is easier to say? Okay, if you brought somebody in front of me who was paralyzed and you said to me, which is easier to say, Joe, forgive his sins or heal him? I'd panic. I'd say, I can't do either one of them. And if I could heal him, it would only be because the Holy Spirit has given me the gift of healing. And the Holy Spirit distributes those gifts severally as he wills, not as I will. And to forgive the man's sin, again, I would have to rely on God. The only way I could get this man's sins forgiven is to lead him to the cross, to Jesus Christ, and to have him on his own confess his sins to God, receive Jesus into his life, and his sins would be forgiven. But again, I couldn't do any of those things on my own. I would have to do it through the power of God. So again, this is another attribute of God. In one session, Jesus reads minds, he forgave sins, and he healed a quadriplegic. But it's still not enough to convince the hardened hearts of these people. Sadly enough, their hearts were hard back then, and people's hearts are still hard today. We hear a lot about hardening of the arteries and uh, plaque building up on the blood vessels and people having to get bypass uh, surgeries for their heart to keep them alive because hardening of the arteries can kill you physically, but hardening of the heart spiritually will kill you eternally. Think about that. Verse 25, it says, Immediately he rose up before him, for them, took up what he had been lying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. So God was glorified, people were amazed, filled with fear, and accounted the day's events as seeing, to seeing strange events, unusual. Because, you know, God took them out of their humdrum life, right? They, they were on a, an emotional roller coaster on that day. They were blown away. And the, their humdrum life was interrupted by the hand of God, the very finger of God. And you know, that can be like, like us too. We do things, we buy a new car, we have a new job, and we can get excited. But eventually, doing something over and over and over again can be humdrum, right? I even think about, people think being a police officer is an exciting job. 
I remember when I was being trained a long time ago, and they let me go off on my own. The first thing I did, you're going to think this is funny, is I took the police car to a deserted area where it was dark, and I turned on the lights and watched the red lights go around the trees. <laughs> I'm probably the only one who will admit that, but... But now it's just, you know, it's a job. If somebody calls me for a domestic, I turn on the lights, turn on the sirens, I'm driving, maybe I'll have a bite of pizza while I'm doing it. But, uh, you know, I have a rookie now. They, I've actually, and he said I could use his as an example in the, in the service, but uh, I have a, a young officer who I'm training, and he, he's excited. You know, the lights go on, the sirens, and I'm just sitting there like, I don't even, my heartbeat doesn't even go up. I'm so used to it. But the thing is, we live, we can, things can become rote after a while. They can become same old, same old. You know what gets me excited is to see a move of God, to see somebody who's, maybe steeped in sin, turn from their sin and ask the Lord into their life. To see a miracle, that gets me excited. So these people, the, the, the finger of God was present that day and they just were so excited. And so it is with us. And the next portion of scripture is called the call of Matthew. Matthew's name was also Levi. A little bit about Matthew. He was a Jewish man who sold out his own people to work for the despised Romans as a tax collector. And these people were notorious for ripping people off. And Matthew must have done pretty good, because another part of Scripture, it says that when he left all to follow Jesus, that he actually had his own booth. It says he had a tax office, he had a booth. So he did okay for himself, Matthew. But let's go into verse 27. It says, After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. To the tune of Matthew wrote a biography of Jesus. The first gospel, Matthew, is written by Matthew. But here's a man who was wealthy. He had good job security, but he gave up all immediately to follow Jesus. Then the question that we have to ask is, or I have to ask is, are you ready to give it all up to follow the Lord? What obstacles are in your way to fully devoting yourself to God? You know, some people want to hold on to stuff, you know, cars and I don't know, jewelry, and uh, with my wife, it's just there's clothes everywhere. See, she's not sitting here, so I could say this now. <laughs> what is it with women in clothes? There's clothes in the attic, there's bags. If you open up the closet, it looks like a, a clothing bomb exploded in it. But I have my issues too, okay, so, and probably far more than her. But we all sometimes like to hold on to stuff. You know, when does your car get so old that you've got to get another one? Gee, it's got 10,000 miles on it. It's uh, kind of, maybe I should get a new car, you know. You get more friends. Your house isn't big enough. You need another house. You know, you, you, there's all these things in your life, all this stuff that you, you recycle and you get more stuff. And then you have so much stuff that it doesn't fit in your house and you have to have a yard sale to get rid of your old stuff. And then your neighbor gets some stuff and you look at your stuff and your neighbor's stuff and realize your neighbor's stuff is nicer than your stuff. Maybe I should update my stuff. So, you know, this is, this is the problem with stuff. But stuff will never make you happy. It will never fill that void in your heart that can only be filled with God. But, you know, can you, can you get rid of that stuff? Can you stop holding on to that stuff? I also think of people who, who hold on to relationships. They go from relationship to relationship to relationship. They get bored with somebody and then they move on to somebody else. They're erroneously trying to fill that void in their heart with another relationship. But it doesn't work. Matthew had the right idea. He was wealthy. The Bible says that he had a great feast and a lot of people came over. He probably had a nice place, right? 
but he gave it all up because he was just spinning his wheels, spinning his wheels. And that's what we should do, too. Uh, moving on, verse 29, it says, Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. So here, Levi is so excited about his new life that he can't wait to introduce other people to the Lord. He's so excited about the prospect of everlasting life that he wants to share it with others. How about us? You know, it wasn't long ago in Europe or uh, the Middle East that Christians were persecuted, that those people who wanted to read the Bible or translate the Bible into the vernacular of the people, English or whatever the people were, uh, spoke at the time, were persecuted, put in prison, burned at the stake. All kinds of horrible things happened. But you know what? They couldn't stop talking about it. Here in this country, we're so comfortable, you can't get us to say anything. You know, we're too busy. can't talk to the guy sitting next to you getting your oil changed. You can't talk about, you know, the, your kid's teacher. You can't talk to them about it. You're just too busy. We're just always in a hurry to do something else. But people have lost their lives for many years to give the gospel, and we hold it in, and we shouldn't do that. Do you want everyone to share in your blessing, or are you afraid of rejection? Remember, those of you who are married, remember your first date, and you're thinking about the other person that you want to ask out. Or if you're on the receiving end, wondering when you're ever going to be asked out, but you're nervous, you know, that fear of rejection. Maybe you think about how you're going to ask the person out, how you're going to look kind of suave or whatever it is. And then you finally do it, you build a relationship, you get married, right? And you look back and say, why did I wait so long? Am I right? Those of you who are shaking your head, no, spouse, hit him with the elbow. <laughs> Verse 30, it says, But their scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9 adds that the Pharisees said to, to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat and drink with sinners? Here comes the guys with the agendas again. Do you see the subtlety? They're gently and subtly trying to discredit Jesus through his followers. They're having a hard time dealing with Jesus, so they figure they'll, put, they'll plant that seed of discord in the minds of his followers gently to try to get them to have doubt, cast aspersions about Jesus. People with agendas can be subtle, they can gently twist scriptures to suit their own agenda, and they can take a long time to be exposed. But I'm of the mindset of the truth always comes out. God always reveals the truth. Verse 31. And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus corrects these guys directly. There's a few things to learn into this passage that we can look at the Pharisees and we're, we're so tempted to look at them as the bad guys or, or the villains of, of the scripture and look at them as the bad guys or look at um, even the children of Israel at times and say, they went through the, the Red Sea. How could they lose their faith? How could they not remember? But you know what? Humans, we don't change. We can look at the same faults in those people and see the faults in our own self. Motives of the heart, what it all comes down to. Jesus' motives was to give of himself to love those that most of the other society didn't love. They compartmentalized these people as the undesirables of society. The religious leaders' motives was self-preservation. They didn't really care. They didn't, they didn't care to show grace to these people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all the outcasts of society. They just wanted to preserve their system, self-preservation. And they also tried to make Jesus look bad 
because he was starting to take the limelight from them. He didn't do it on purpose. When the word of God speaks, people will be drawn to it. So they started to be drawn away from these religious leaders and more towards Jesus. And that bothered them. It incensed them. Uh, And you think about people who always try to make someone else look bad. It's usually a sign of insecurity within themselves. And come on, we've all been there. I'm ashamed to say that I've done that in my life. If you are with a group of people and you can make this person look bad and that person and that person, who looks good? You do. Whether you do it overtly or, or, or you know, inherently, you are trying to make yourself look better. And, and we all probably can say that we've been there at some point or another. Two, these people were self-centered. They were overly critical about everyone else, but they didn't see any fault within themselves. I'm going to read 1 John 1, 8 through 11. 1 John 1, 8 through 11. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We need to have the ability to see our own sin. We need to have the ability to be correctable. The Bible says this, in Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. In a nutshell, that means if you surround yourself with people who are always telling you how wonderful you are, and they never tell you when when you have problems, they're really not your true friends. Sometimes your true friends are the ones who can come to you and get 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 one-on-one with you and say, hey, listen, what you're doing is wrong. You're setting a bad example. A lot of my friends I have today sometimes... um, maybe too much unwelcome, but they often tell me where I've gone wrong. I mean, after a while, it kind of could get old, but it's good to have friends around you who can help you to see where you're going wrong and lovingly correct you. That's a true friend. So we have to have the ability to see our own sin and also to allow other people to point that sin out. There's a term in Christianity that I've heard which, which blows me away that people still use it. It's called to arrive. And some people feel that they've arrived in a sense. They've hit a certain plateau in their Christian walk where they, they can look, look above the fray and see that they're better than other people. But i got news for you. No one ever arrives. We never arrive. We still have a sin nature and we won't shed it until the Lord comes back for us. And two, the religious leaders use their religion as a social club, as status in society. Who's who in the club? So it can be also with Christianity. The danger sometimes is to, again, get into that mindset where you feel that you only can socialize with people on your status level, even, even among Christianity. And that can be a problem. Um, I, I have, I'm of the mindset of, of Peter in 1 Peter 5.1 where he says he is a fellow elder. People have tried to elevate Peter, the disciple, in so many ways over the years. But from his own words, he said, I am a fellow elder. He didn't elevate himself over anyone else. And Paul said he was a fellow elder and laborer. And Paul wrote half of the New Testament. I mean, didn't he have rights to brag a little bit? But he didn't. He was a very humble guy. i got to tell you, when I'm around too many stuffy, self-righteous Christians, I like to go back to the police job and see people who who are real. Uh, You know, you, you deal with somebody who's got caught shoplifting or somebody who's addicted to drugs, and they don't claim to be something that they're not. 
And it's, it's such a refreshing thing because, you know, there's just an honesty there. Because, you know, we have to show people grace. Um, you know, these people didn't show grace. They, they compartmentalized the undesirables of society and they, they left them to the side. So the question is, how do we see the undesirables in society? Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that they are. I kind of say that with quotation marks because that's how people see it. And un unfortunately, if you talk to most people, they can tell you a group of people or a portion of the neighborhood or something somewhere where they look at somebody as less than themselves, the forgotten ones. Do we look at people as beneath us or do we see them with the eyes of Christ? These are spiritually sick people that need to be healed by our Lord and Savior. And if we're honest with ourselves, we at some point were those same spiritually sick people. For me, it was 10 years ago. For you, it may have been 5 years ago or 15 years ago. But by the grace of God, he used someone to get our attention and to bring us to faith. And that's how we have to see these people. Let's pray.